Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show with your host, Diane Kennedy, myself, and Rebecca Banks, my co-author and co-host of the Bright Not Broken radio show and also the book of the same title. And this evening, we uh, first of all want to give a very, very warm thank you to Marianne Russo for not only allowing us to be on the Coffee Clatch Network and host this program, but we're going to be talking about a very important topic tonight, the DSM. The title of the show is The DSM, The Layman's Guide for Parents and Professionals Alike uh, as we get into these discussions that are going to cross both of those categories. And Marianne has been hosting programs right here on the Coffee Clatch Network for over a year, bringing attention to this very important topic that affects us all, whether we are a professional whose uh, livelihood and career is uh, based in the DSM, or whether we're a parent who has a child that is being affected. And somewhere in your journey with your own child, like us, you've no doubt encountered the DSM, and it's awesome power to dictate the diagnoses, the medications, the therapies, and the educational services that your child receives. Parents of twice exceptional children are highly vulnerable in that position by balancing their concern for their children with the necessity of placing their trust in the DSM, which, by the way, is the Diagnostic and Statistical uh, Manual of Mental Disorders, just so we clarify that. But parents have to balance um, their concern for their children with uh, by placing their trust in the DSM and also in placing their trust in the professionals who use it. And oftentimes there uh, is a problem where parents really don't understand this powerful system. Uh, they rely on the professionals. And so we're going to start out with this two-part series. Tonight we're talking about the layman's guide. We hope to give you a background, a history, just kind of lay down what this what this manual is and how it was constructed and what exactly, in the most simplest terms we hope <laughs> that we can give you and some definitions of the most difficult terms tonight, we're going to give you uh, just an overview of the system and really kind of get an outline of what's going on here because in the month of July, we have got some fantastic guests coming up who are professionals who have been on the committees 
for the DSM. They have done research and uh, done articles that are calling on these controversies in the DSM. We have got Dr. Lorna Wing, Fred Volkmar, Judith Gould. We've got all kinds of people for you this month, so we look forward to that. But right now, um, I'd like to sort of get into this um, and welcome Rebecca. Are you there? I am here. Wonderful. Let me let me just outline um, this little piece, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Rebecca, and let you um, give us some of the technical <laughs> things that we need to help our uh, our listeners understand this evening. But an important thing, as as I mentioned, how important this manual had become to us in our own lives. Although you often hear the the term, you know, it's it's just a manual, and everybody just uses it as a guide. But unfortunately, it can stay in the way of getting the services and sometimes the right um, diagnostic uh, information that parents need to understand their children. But as we attempted to answer these questions ourselves one night several years ago, we stumbled on the fact that there was um, a group of professionals who were questioning the fundamental design of the DSM and the accuracy of the way that the disorders are defined. And they were acknowledging that there are uh, that there is a need for new approaches Approaches to diagnosing these disorders. And to our surprise, this group turned out to be some of the very professionals who were responsible for creating and revising the DSM. And those experts included high-ranking members of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and uh, that's the the uh, organization that authors and publishes the DSM. They were among them were Robert, Dr. Robert Spitzer, and Dr. Alan Francis. Um, they're both past chairs of the DSM task force. Michael First is editor of the DSM four and uh, DSM four TR. And uh, David Kufner is the chair of the DSM five task force. And so um, when we discovered that there was there was a problem at the highest level where there seemed to be a question of maybe we need to stop and look at where we've come, how we got there, and do we really need to implement these changes, which have been um, a lot of the topics we've discussed here on the Coffee Clutch Network. Uh, and let me interject self. really fast because Please. I think as we were coming into this, Diane, we also were, at the time, there was just talk about, the possibility of DSM-5. At the time that we discovered these controversies, they weren't absolutely certain they were moving forward with the revisions that are actually going to um, come out in 2013 now. So um, we're talking, folks, several years ago, back in uh, 2005, 2006, that span of time um, when right, soon after the publication of DSM-4-TR, we were um, looking at this, and they were talking about not only redefining disorders, which has sparked so much controversy, but they're talking about does the system that all of these disorders our children are diagnosed with, does it actually work? So um, I That's just right. wanted to clarify. No, I'm glad you did. And, and from there... This, this has been a conversation for a long time among the highest-ranking professionals in the DSM committee. Absolutely, and I just want to point out, as we, we're highlighting from our chapter that we wrote about because we felt it was so important to bring these definitions and share this information with the public and with other parents who really um, would like an understanding of this manual that can sometimes direct the, um, the, the care and treatment that their children get. 
And it was a difficult chapter for us to research ourselves because um, we are not physicians, as we clearly state, and and, in trying to understand, um, you know, basically how this works and put it into layman's terms, I really have to give you a lot of credit for that, Rebecca, and your wonderful giftedness in writing. Um, If anyone ever ever doubts um, how well things are explained, we've had that compliment many times. Um, Rebecca certainly has a gift, of course. Of course, that's been her profession, is writing, and she has a gift. And this couldn't be a more complicated area to try to explain in layman's terms. And so with that, if you want to kind of give us an overview and a history of, let's go back to DSM-2 and and how we jumped to DSM-3, which is really the model that has been used in subsequent revisions and where we currently have it. Can you explain that and sort of get into that for our listeners? Sure. Um, with DSM-2, um, the power for defining the mental disorders rested with the clinicians in sort of a bottom-up system where um, the descriptions of psychiatric syndromes were um, conceived of as broad constellations of symptoms. And then the treatment that was prescribed came from the data that the rank-and-file clinicians um, sent to um the APA to define broad syndromes, not discrete disorders. Um, the practice of psychiatry in the 50s and 60s, which is when DSM-2 was really in its heyday, was influenced by psychoanalytical theory. And that took into account factors other than just symptoms, but also what a patient's thoughts, motivations, desires, their personality, as well as behavioral symptoms and IQ. Um, all of these things were um, considered when a clinician would make a diagnosis. So on a case-by-case basis, clinicians would analyze a patient's unique profile and then make a diagnosis. Unfortunately, there was little consistency under DSM-2 about how the labels were assigned since there was a limited amount of information given to clinicians as far as descriptions of the illnesses. Also under DSM-2, there weren't any standard guidelines to determine when um, a patient would meet the requirements for diagnosis. So all of these were issues that that came into play in the design of DSM-3, which came about in the 1980s. In DSM-3, the system flipped. The whole paradigm changed from the the bottom-up, from the practicing clinicians defining the syndromes to a top-down system where the professionals and the academic researchers um, took the power and identified the disorders. And it was to establish more the primacy of research because one goal of the DSM, um, as explained, especially in DSM-IV, TR, was to come up with a list of standardized diagnostic criteria because up to that point clinicians didn't have those. So as a result of the shift, these broad syndromes that DSM-2 had identified were broken down into little, narrowly defined clusters of symptoms. And then the disorders would be diagnosed and treated according to the guidelines given by the research. So DSM-3 marked a transformation into the methodology that we recognize today. Um, The narrowly defined symptoms, based disorders that are grouped together under categories. And these categories are designed to imply relatedness. For instance, um, 
behavioral disorders are all grouped together. Developmental disorders are all grouped together. Mood disorders are grouped together. So that um, it, it was assumed with these groupings that there's a relatedness among the disorders. So um, as, as we shifted from DSM-2 to DSM-3, the authorship shifted as well from practicing psychiatrists to academic researchers, um, one of whom was, I think you mentioned his name earlier, Diane, is Dr. Robert Spitzer. Mm-hmm. And yes, he's the one who led the development of, of DSM-3, and he and a huge group of experts defined and grouped the diagnoses by their clusters of symptoms. And the idea was to give these um, these symptoms and these disorders the appearance of being discrete, independent disorders, um, kind of like to to imitate the physical model, if you will, the physical disease model, so that we know that if you have a cough and your bronchial tubes are I'm not a physician, but you know your bronchial tubes are irritated and you're not you're not very productive and you're running a fever, you know maybe they want to look for pneumonia. So they wanted this discrete class of mental disorders rather than those broad-based syndromes, so that they could come through with their checklist and say, okay, okay, you have this particular disorder. So they added lengthy descriptions of each disorder. They added a checklist of symptoms or the criteria that are required to make a diagnosis. And then they came up with a minimum number of symptoms that the patient had to have in order to qualify for the diagnosis. So with DSM-3, you get a very standardized approach to to, um, diagnosing mental illness. In addition... Um, what you've got is during this time there were some huge cultural forces come into play in the 1980s and um, there were a couple of social policy experts um, who have argued that politics and conflicts within the psychiatric field led to this new diagnostic system that the government also was one thing that that was driving it because as the NIH and the NIMH became more involved in research and policymaking and mental health, they needed standardized practices and approaches. Insurance companies were demanding that psychiatrists validate their diagnoses and their treatments as medically effective, so the insurance companies were calling for standardized approach, and the pharmaceutical companies were needing markets for testing and, and distributing their products. So they were calling for standardized approaches. So we have all of these powerful forces coming into play in the 1980 revision that completely changed this paradigm. So one thing I think is really important is that we accept it so readily as parents and lay people, and even graduate students coming through the programs in medical schools and psychology programs take the DSM as an established system, which it is an established system, but they take it as an established system in terms of reliability, validity, and even usefulness. And they say, oh, well, it's it's all been established. But I think it's really important, as we show in our chapter, Diane, that these three criteria that, that were brought up and established for the DSM are actually still undergoing a whole lot of controversy. And if you don't mind, could you explain to us what, what those mean? Because I, I will. 
because I think um, it's. I had to be a student, actually, and at times I felt like a student of yours <laughs> because I oh. think you caught on to those terms a little bit quicker than I did, although I've heard them. They're, they're a little bit frightening to a parent to hear terms like reliability and validity, utility. I mean, we don't use those terms normally when we're putting uh, information together to understand our children, but we need to understand them as far as the system and, and how it works and how it potentially um, could could be flawed, and that has been the, the question and source of controversy. But it is important, as you pointed out, uh, Rebecca, that that the idea here was to get a medical model that could be used um, for the clinicians on a clinical level by understanding and by identifying what what these um, disorders are. And um, as a matter of fact, as we state, uh, that the APA maintains that its highest priority has been to provide a helpful guide to clinical practice. And while that is a worthy goal for sure, um, it, the claim seems to ring a little bit hollow in light of the continued debates about those terms, about the reliability and validity of uh, and the usefulness of the DSM. So as we look well, at the – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say definitely because what the DSM system has tried to do is, is to straddle the fence, so to speak. They've tried to serve two masters, um, right. one being the, the aims of the researchers and the insurance companies and the government and the pharmaceutical companies, and then the other being the, the needs of the clinicians to serve parents and provide treatment. So what we've got is, it, it is, it's been a worthy goal, if you will, but it's like we said, it, one or the other is going to fall short. And as parents, I think we're finding that the DSM system falls short of serving the practicing clinicians. And I think that's why it's so important for us right now to understand why we can make this claim or why we're making the claim that it is falling short at the practical level. And so if you don't, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I oh, just no. want people to understand that That's it is, it, you know, they're trying to serve two, two, two masters, and um, in, in the construct of it, it, it's actually falling short in the three criteria, reliability, validity, and usefulness at the clinical level. So go ahead and explain to our listeners what those mean. I'm going to, and I'd, I'm glad you you pointed that out. And I'd like to say as we get in, because we're sort of kicking off the month here, where we're going to get into some really, uh, really going to dig deep and have some wonderful experts, some global experts on our program. And I'd mm-hmm. like to invite um, our listeners as you listen, uh, feel free to to tweet us on Twitter, to uh, write us on Facebook, join in on, in the discussion, and let us know your concerns and your questions and your experiences of what of um you know what the system means to you and we'd like um you know we'd like everybody to to join in and we hope that we're answering the questions that um that you you know need to understand the system so as we get to these terms let's define these three terms because that really outlines how this system is constructed and those terms are reliability and we're going to start with that there's three of them reliability validity and utility and basically a layman's term for reliability in the scientific sense means that the same results can be reproduced in different clinical settings um 
and for our discussion that we're talking about, the term validity, which is extremely important. Is this a valid system? It refers to how effectively the current system describes and categorizes distinct diagnostic entities that have clear boundaries from each other and from normal behavior. And and what we mean by that is to say if you've got symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, and um, distractibility, and these are um, what are the core symptoms of, say, ADHD, it has to be a distinct disorder in order for this system to be valid and to work. Because if those symptoms better define another disorder, well, it just stands to reason with common sense that you, you can't have a distinct disorder that specifies the same symptoms um, as being core in two different disorders. So that is an important important topic is the validity. And the utility means the definition um, of utility in scientific terms and as we relate to this discussion. It means how it is used in everyday use, how useful a description can be of a disease or disorder in communicating the essential information. And that means basically, is it useful in the clinical setting? Can it be used because it makes sense, because it describes uh, a distinct entity which in turn would be valid and if it can then it's reliable because we can repeat that in different situations we'll get the same answer i hope that helps did i did i cover that <laughs> pretty much pretty much okay. did a great job there um Thank what's you. really interesting when we take the first um as we look at the dsm system against those three criteria you know um, how well is it matching up, and what what have the experts said about it? And interestingly, when DSM three and uh, the categorical system was conceptualized, Spitzer and his groups their main argument for the paradigm shift from the broad based syndromes to the narrow discrete disorders was that DSM two and that broad based syndrome system was inherently unreliable and he argued, and they argued, therefore invalid with regard to the medical model for mental illness. Because in order for practitioners to consistently produce the same result from patient to patient, there has to be an absolute standard for evaluating a classification system's effectiveness. And so there was no absolute standard with DSM-2, and actually there's no absolute standard now for that matter. But... Um, at the time, he was arguing and that because the system is unreliable, it is invalid. So we have to we have to standardize all of these all of this information and create a new system um, of, of discrete disorders. So I think it's pretty interesting that to improve reliability, they tried to give a little foolproof recipe for each disorder which included the, the longest description, checklist of symptoms, cutoff point saying, okay, if you have five of these symptoms, you don't have the disorder, but if you have seven, you do. And I always found it interesting to figure out how they came up with those numbers. And in our research, um, we found that, uh, interestingly enough, they ended up voting on those numbers rather than, than actually having a true medical basis for anything because you have to remember DSM-3, um, they were setting out to find biological basis for all of the mental disorders rather than 
having that knowledge. So at the time, it was it was all by consensus. The disorders were set up by consensus, and the number of criteria required to make a diagnosis was set up by consensus, and even the lengthy description of the disorder, it was all voted on by the, the committee. So um, it's, they're, they're coming up with these recipes. They, they sold the DSM system on claims that the, the new diagnostic system was very, very reliable, but um, nowadays it's it's coming in. There's there's uh, kind of some controversy about how actually reliable it was. In fact, um, in the introduction of DSM, as I said earlier, it was uh, designed to meet the needs of researchers and clinicians, and so they generated all of this. But now, as the as things have evolved, they're starting to see that the reliability of the diagnostic criteria for research is, is pretty solid, more solid than it is at the practical level. So what's happened, interestingly enough, is as Michael First, who's one of the uh, DSM-4 science editors, said that the, during the past 25, 30, even 40 years now, DSM and psychopharmacology have kind of, quote, grown up together and had a strong influence on each other so that the development of the explicit and reliable diagnostic criteria for research has generated scientific data that validates the categories that the researchers are using for research. So that what we get here is a false reliability because it's circular. The scientists set up uh, the criteria, they do the research on the criteria, they validate the criteria, and then they do more research and say, oh, well, it's valid. So we get this kind of circular validation going on at the research level that doesn't necessarily work at the clinical level. So what we have to ask, question is um, the more pressing issue for parents is how or even if reliability trans in research translates into diagnostic reliability. And in a recent uh, New Yorker article, and I find this very interesting, Alan Francis, who has been on several times, explained um, his opinion is that the reliability of the DSM, although it's been approved, it was oversold and has been oversold. And even as recently as, um, I think, 2007, Spencer commented on the reliability of the DSM, saying that any claim that reliability, the reliability problems have been solved is, quote, not just not true. He says, if you're in a situation with a gen general clinician, it's certainly not very good. There's still a real problem. And I think it's kind of ironic that Spitzer argued that unreliability was called for a new paradigm, and that paradigm shift in DSM-3, even as now he's saying that the paradigm that they established is also unreliable. In fact, Francis um, says that the system... Without reliability, a system's completely random, and the diagnoses mean almost nothing. He says, quote, may be worse than nothing because they're falsely labeling. He says, in some cases, you're even better off not having a diagnostic system if it's going to be unreliable. So at the highest levels, reliability with the DSM and the categorical system is still really, really a shaky concept at the practitioner's level. Um, do you have anything to add, Diane? I think you've done a wonderful job talking about reliability. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to get to validity because I know that that seems to be, oh. um, you know, I'm just I'm staring at um, 
the work that we read about from Kendall, the experts Kendall and Jablinski, and I'm just excited for you to read about that. <laughs> okay, and the other thing about it is we have to say with regard to validity, this is where parents get trapped in the multiple labels because we, That's right. you know, it's assumed that the system has that for a a diagnosis or disorder to be valid, it has clear and natural boundaries, like you said, that separate it from other and other disorders. So each one's a discrete entity. And um, that this was set up in the hopes that they would indeed find the, the biological underpinnings for it. But um, what is it Kendall and Jablonski said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that so far the DSM failed to identify a single neurological Neurobiological marker or gene, right? Separated by natural boundaries. Yeah, separated. So that what we've got are genes, like Susan Smalley's research in 2004, where they were finding that the same genes implicated in ADHD and autism, and so that they can't find one that would support one of the individual necessarily disorders, but rather because we know that. ADHD and autism share symptomology that that gene would actually support both of those. So that, in the sense of you know having the DSM system working in that instance, isn't because the single neurobi- neurobiological marker still hasn't been identified. Not to say that it may not be, but at this point in time, it hasn't. Um, so, I just think validity is very important when it comes to the issue of comorbidity because that's where there's no assumption um, that each of these, well, there is the assumption that each of these is separate and discrete, but ultimately in parents, I know so many of us don't read introductions to books. I mean, as a teacher, my students don't read the introduction. I confess, I'm really bad about skipping the introduction. But in the introduction to DSM-4, there's a disclaimer that is so important, and I don't even know how many professionals actually read it. But the DSM itself states, even though validity is a criterion for the, the system itself being a valid, reliable system, it says there's no assumption that each category of mental disorder is complete is a completely discrete entity with absolute boundaries, dividing it from other mental disorders or from no mental disorder at all. In other words, the authors of the DSM themselves, when they're saying that, they're saying that the symptoms, the system itself doesn't conform to the criterion for validity that they established for the system. So again, we're kind of running in circles here. In fact, Francis um, and, and several other experts say that most of the disorders in the DSM lack clear boundaries with near neighbors and could well have been defined with alternative items or a different number of, of checklists, uh, check, a criteria for, for meeting the threshold, and so that there's really no basis for assuming that the disorders in the DSM fall in nature with any degree of precision. So, in short... So far, the DSM lacks diagnostic validity because it doesn't prove that each disorder is discrete. And also, in terms of um, construct validity, even though it claims that each disorder is going to have its own biological underpinning so far, that's not been proven. So, so far, two out of three criteria, it's not meeting what was established for it to be 
a, a valid or reliable system. That's right. If I can just jump in there and, and add one thing to that, that I think you've done a oh, beautiful job of describing <laughs> validity. And it's why validity is so, as I said, the meat, because you're absolutely right, Rebecca, that this is where our parents of multiple, multiple diagnosed children, OCD, ODD, ADHD, bipolar, etc., where these all get lumped together, this becomes so very important because basically the validity question is behind uh, why we need to look at these co- this comorbidity issue and how huge it is and how important it is to make us, it should make us stop and say, rather than looking at this new diagnostic manual and we're just once again shaking up, um, you know, the same um, the same disorders and just kind of trimming mm-hmm. them here and pushing them over there if if it doesn't work at the most fundamental level. In other words, if we can't really make them distinct categories and, and define them biologically, then we've got a mess. We really do. Well, and, and I agree completely. And if you think about it, um, some – well, a member of the DSM-5 workgroup in mood disorders even said that artificially splitting a complex condition, clinical condition, into several pieces may represent a new source of diagnostic unreliability. And when we think about what's happening with autism, which is defined, and we'll get into this later this month, as a social communication disorder at the heart of it, but then they're creating in DSM-5 a social communication disorder that is separate from autism. We, we, we're splitting these, these, these disorders in ways that um, it's very frightening for parents. And um, just in terms of the system itself, it almost magnifies the unreliability of it, if you will. Um, and then the, the last criterion for a valid um, system is utility and that's like you said it's about the usefulness of it for clinicians and researchers and for researchers utility or usefulness has already pretty much been established because like I said the circular logic where they establish the disorder they establish the criteria they do the research on the criteria they validate the disorder based on the research on the criteria that they establish and so that it it's a circular reasoning if you will Utility at the clinical um, at the research level is pretty pretty fairly sound. They keep narrowing it, like with autism and DSM five. They're narrowing the criteria even more so that they can get a more even more homogenous group and, for research purposes. But in terms of the usefulness at the clinical level, uh, it's not so uh, so effective. In fact, primary care physicians are using the system. Um, Clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and they're all, um, they, uh, many of them complain that they, the concept, the tool, it's, it's just not meeting their needs. As a matter of fact, there isn't a peer, uh, the diagnosis itself and the outcome of treatment, which is really the aim of the DSM, it's, it's to prescribe, not just to give a child a label, but to to lead to treatment that's going to be effective, the interventions that are going to be effective that are going to harm the child or or waste precious years out of a child's life. And I'm just thinking of my own experience. Um, 
you know, you get a label, you get stuck in it, you get mired in it, and something new emerges, and you end up with another label, and you're spending so much of your child's life trying to find the answers for these things that um, the system itself, because it's not that useful, it's identifying what is going on with the child that bit by bit as development occurs, we get another label and another label. The, the clinical utility or usefulness of it is really questionable. Um, Dr. Warren Wing even says that the categories themselves haven't proved helpful in prescribing the types of education, behavior management, medication, or other treatment that our children need. So we really come out to the end, Diane, asking who does the system serve? Um, That's right. If, if not the parents and the clinicians, who who is it serving? And That's um that's right, and I want to add, I know we said this in the beginning, but and you know, we say this often to parents who come up to us really frustrated, and there seems to be this, you know, butting heads between them. And, yes. and of course, naturally, yes. we just, you know, we think, well, you're the physician, you must know, and or if you have the answer, you're just not giving it to us. And we've got to, to cut them some slack here, because we, we have many, many professionals who have supported, um, you know, what we've said about that and expressed their own frustration, and I'm so yes. glad to see many of them and their organizations speaking out against the DSM, saying if you don't fix this, we're not sure we're going to use it, because they're they're almost vilified by the parents, because as if you know they have control over how they're trained or what they're taught, but yet you know they have the common sense to figure this out just like we have, and um, of course even more so because their jobs depend on it. And and we have to to ease up just a little bit on our everyday frontline clinicians, whose hearts and minds and you know work is in the right place, but they're using and they're bound by a system that yeah. um you know that has these flaws, and so. Um, we're just encouraging you to to maybe think twice you know um sometimes it you may get a professional who just you know really is rigid in their thinking and um of course always always educate yourself and get a second opinion be flexible and and hopefully you'll find a flexible um professional who will help you understand that um despite the flaws of the system there is a way to understand your child's needs there's a wonderful resources um once we understand the true impairments we can work around them as we all work to hopefully call attention and light to changing the system. Well, and I also think it's really important, back to blaming the clinicians, that, you know, as we were doing this research, Diane, I just really came to understand the magnitude and power of the DSM system itself. It's used in 22 right. countries. Every graduate student in psychology, every not even every undergraduate student in psychology Every in medical school, everyone is trained using this system. So this is what they come up. This is the perspective that they have, and they don't stop to question, like we did as outsiders, the the reliability, the validity, or the usefulness of the system because they're being trained in the system. So it's and when we think about just how much the DSM has permeated our society. I mean, we hear it in music. You hear people say all the time, oh, well, you know, I'm just having an ADD moment or, you know, I'm I'm feeling so bipolar today. I mean, people throw around these labels now in common everyday speech 
as if it's been tried and true and tried true and proven that this right. this system stands, it's valid, it's useful and it's reliable and it isn't until we start trying to navigate the the system with our children and find answers for our loved ones that that we really start to understand and ask questions about, well, why isn't this working? And a lot of times, I don't know about you or any other parents, but there were times when I felt like, well, wow, you know, my my child must really have something be different because we can't get the answer here. And it helped That's me right. to find, you know, to discover that, you know, what, there's one statistic in our book where they say 56% of all psychiatric patients, not just children, but psychiatric patients across the board, have two or more disorders. And when you look at ADHD, the number jumps up, the percentage will jump up to close to 100% of of children diagnosed with ADHD will carry two or three labels. So it, it helps parents. I think it's so important for parents to understand that the clinicians are doing what they're trained that their child is not just some oddity, but the system itself, we really need to put the brakes on and we really need to have a nonpartisan committee kind of come together and look at the system itself, not just those with vested interests in the system, in the APA, in the pharmaceutical companies, in the government research areas, but a whole nonpartisan group start checking out and look and see if these discrete disorders are the best way to diagnose. Uh, well, and I'd like to, I'd like to jump person. in there, Rebecca, and say that is exactly. I've listened to it several times, and I encourage our listeners to, if you haven't, go to the Coffee Clutch uh, podcast of Dr. Alan Francis. Mm-hmm. It was just a few yes. months ago. That's exactly what his call to action was, and I think we're a hundred percent in sync with him. That we need an outside, nonpartisan uh, committee here to look at that. I mean, you and I have both discussed the, you know, the wonderful um, world. It would be if we could sit down at the table, bring these researchers together, bring these committee members together and say, listen, we need a scientific discussion here that doesn't involve any outside interest except the science itself. And are we reaching our goal? And that, as you stated, is to effectively uh, be able to support and treat the patients that we seek to serve, um, you know, with our children and and the patients that the professionals are seeking to serve. I think, you know, there was a quote, and I remember being so excited about it uh, when we were when we were writing the book because um, it was uh, on a medical forum where uh, it was a neurology forum where a professional stated that it isn't a question of whether we have to rearrange these categories in an appropriate way, but Mm -hmm. whether the whole system of categories that we have depended upon works. I mean that's huge. That that is stating, are you know if we're dealing with a flawed system, then we're just rearranging the chairs, you know the deck chairs on the Titanic here, and and we this is a serious issue. It is, and, and when you think that DSM three set out to find, they they started out with no research, so they set up these categories. We need to stop now and bring the research to the table and reflect nonpartisanly. And without, you know, everyone's special interest in there and reflect on the findings and look and see what clusters of these disorders seem to appear and occur together. What treatments have we discovered that work best with these symptoms? What therapies, 
what pursuits in terms of education best helps and we need to reflect on the vast amount of knowledge that's been found since the DSM system was developed and look and see how things need to be revised, changed, and, and perhaps reconceptualized as we move forward. We don't need another version of a flawed system. No, we don't. And, you know, as we also pointed out, as psychologist and professor Jeffrey Poland explains in his commentary on the DSM, um, Nevertheless, the uh, never nevertheless the existing paradigm must be changed for the good of our children and society, because regardless of the amount of work it requires or the number of industries it affects, and you know we we put a quote in there and I love it from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he said the time is always right to do what's right, and that. And that also refers back to uh, the Einstein quote that we use in the beginning of the book, or the beginning of this chapter, Layman's Guide to the DSM. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. And I, I think that's so true. It, it is time to question. It's time, as um, as the public, um, you know, gets closer to this just impacting us so globally, it's time for us to stand up and really look at these issues. Is there yes, anything else you'd like to add? No, not really. I mean, I know I got on my soapbox. <laughs> That's right. We I both do. <laughs> I just think it's really important because, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, he, he believes that he the people, if given the truth, can be dependent upon to meet any national crisis. And the point is to bring them the real facts. Uh, this is a national crisis. We are medicating our children. We are not properly educating our children. We are losing their talents and gifts. We are we are changing the course of human lives daily with this diagnostic system. And it's it's time that that more attention be called at at the parental at the grassroots level, if you will, of the importance of this issue um, because it, it affects all of us. But so many people are unaware. And I just think we need a grassroots effort to begin with this. Um, we do, absolutely. About it. And we need to join forces with those professionals who are yes, speaking out. very and much. You and I have both had several conversations, and we've also um, – had lots of input into our book from uh, several researchers who have been just passionate about this issue and wanting mm-hmm. to see change. And that would be uh, Dr. Um, Lorna Wing and Dr. Judith Gould. They, uh, they of course, are experts and pioneers in the field of autism, as is Dr. Fred Volkmar. And um, they've got a lot to say, and we are so excited and just absolutely honored to have them on. Um, I'm, I'm watching out my window as I see some fireworks exploding, and I'm thinking this is our program in the in well, the month of July. It it certainly is because is. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, these professionals. Um, I mean, they have a lot to say, and and they are just um, they're so passionate about it, and we are honored to be collaborating with them. And one more thing is we're talking about the DSM and the categorical system. Parents may have heard with the DSM-5 revisions, the term dimensional diagnosis coming up. And Dr. Lorna Wing and Dr. Judith Gould, strong advocates for that. Um, But when we talk about dimensional diagnosis within our book, we're not talking about dimensional diagnosis within a category, but dimensional across the individual. 
so that we can see what the broad-based issues that are affecting the individual are. So I urge parents and professionals to, to dig deeper into dimensional assessment and diagnosis in terms of what we say in our book, but understand that we mean more cross-categorical, not not within categories, because um, I think we've been talking about the categorical system and looking at it, and we in this program we haven't really offered the 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 I'm sorry the alternative that that we discuss in our book we didn't even bring it up because we've been so focused on what's wrong with the current system but there there are alternatives out there being batted around one is dimensional. Unfortunately, in DSM-5, they want to just keep the dimensional approach within these categories that, as we've shown already, are unreliable, um, potentially invalid, and definitely not useful at the clinical level. That's right. And, you know, you, you just reminded me of something that's really important to add here, that, you know, sometimes in our, and for lack of a better word, and I and I have adjusted to Twitter, and I absolutely love it. I didn't think I'd be able to just, you know, speak 140 <laughs> characters at a time. And I know you know that's true of me when I get on my soapbox. But we're we're kind of in that quick fix thing. You know, we're all busy, and, you know, our life is 140 characters at a moment, um, at any given moment. But it's so, so important that we point out, as we're looking for those quick fixes, a lot of times parents have said, hey, just give me 10 tips how to help my kid in the classroom or at home. You know, tell me what to tell his teacher in five easy steps. And that is the how to help them. And, of course, you know, we have researched some of the greatest um, professionals in how to help them, even in the classroom, yes. such as Michelle Garcia Winter, who's coming on the program. But it's really important. And I know uh, you and I have tried to express this, so if we can, as we broke our book into three sections, identifying who they are and why they're stuck and how to help them, and this is the answer to how to help them. It's understanding right. why they're stuck. And that's right. the piece that although there are so many well-meaning books identifying who these kids are, especially the giftedness and looking at the uh, disabilities as well, but if we don't dig in and look at why they're stuck, we're just perpetuating the same problem. We're putting a Band-Aid on it. We can give you 10 tips how to help in the classroom, but if you don't understand the true behavior that's driving them, and you're not going to understand that behavior because you're mislabeled with maybe 10 diagnoses and none of them are right, or maybe it's the giftedness that's causing those symptoms, then you're, you're not going to be able to help them. The best way to help them is to really, really understand why they are stuck. I mean, I think we both feel very strongly about that. Uh, exactly. And as, as you were talking, I'm thinking of every educator that I know, every teacher that I work with, very few of them understand what the behaviors may indicate um, other than, oh, the understanding is based on the DSM system. I have a child with this label. They act this way, so this is how I treat them. When I talk to them and, and I do professional developments and I get a chance to have conversations and I explain that behavior is communication and if you look deeper and dig deeper into what's being communicated, suddenly these teachers are going, why did not I learn this? Why haven't I? And it's because this DSM system that we use impacts everything from education to mental health to even 
just every potential life outcome. And and it's so important that the public as a whole understand that this system, that the professionals at the highest level are debating it. They know it's not working. They know there are problems with it. But it's something that for whatever reason, it's not made headline news. And that's why we were so passionate and so determined in our book to make that the center and the heart of our book. And that's what sets us apart because there are so many other books out there that do so many things so well. We would just be, you know, adding, echoing. But in this particular section of the book, this is where the true advocacy effort comes out, where our hearts are as parents. Do you agree, Diane? I agree wholeheartedly. And I probably, as we close, isn't a good time to to bring out a word like reify. But uh, we'll (laughs) we'll leave that for a homework question. We actually have um, an attorney friend of ours. She's a special needs uh, attorney in New York. And um, she didn't know or understand what that word meant. But, of course, she looked it up. And what I mean by that and what I want to add here at the end is, as you were speaking, you reminded me of, you know, we've heard professionals say, I know ADHD when I see it. I know autism when I see it. And, you know, we have to smile and say, well, you're seeing a a DSM label is what you're seeing. You're not seeing a child with the actual symptom because, you know, you may have attached an understanding based on a flawed system that, um, you know, is identifying a symptom that another disorder has um, identified the same symptom but with a totally mm-hmm. different meaning. And I know right. I'm I'm kind of giving away uh, next week as we get into the whole um the whole validation of the system and actually the validation and how that you know how the the flawed system is going to affect and it has affected we're just not looking at the whole argument of the science of ADHD just compelling topic and we'll be talking with researchers about that next week because it's it's significant it's it's sort of the what our friend Carl Daisy on our first book the the autism father expert said you've got to define your terms well that's what this manual is supposed to be doing is defining our terms but unfortunately we're all using the same terms but we're not defining them in the same way therefore we question the validity and the reliability and the usefulness of the system well i have nothing more to add diane (laughs) that's wonderful I think we'll have plenty to say as we interview our guests this this month, and uh, we thank you so much for tuning in. And once again, we want to just give a shout-out to um, to Marianne Russo for also tackling the DSM topic and bringing it to the public attention. And we feel together our efforts hopefully will help expand this understanding. And, again, we encourage you and invite you to um, to share and to interact with us on Facebook and on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to get this, this, um, this uh, talk going in a really explosive way like those fireworks outside my window. <laughs> and I would like to just take a minute and take the opportunity to thank all of the service people um, who have uh, – just committed their lives to the service of our country. Thank you very, very much. That's right. We absolutely um, have to give them honor And uh, as we think about the celebration of our independent nation on this mm-hmm. 4th of July. So we thank you and uh, have a very, very good evening. <laughs>